When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm John Stewart, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to part two of my discussion with Roger Steffens. Now, Roger is a writer, actor, radio host, legendary reggae historian, and author of So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley. Now, in part one, we covered a lot. We talked about Roger's time in the Vietnam War. We talked about the passing of Jim Morrison and how he was connected. Then we also talked about the night he met Bob Marley for the very first time. But in this episode, we'll dive into his time as a radio host for Reggae Beat on KCRW, which incidentally became the most popular non-commercial radio show in Los Angeles, according to the Nielsen ratings in LA Weekly. We'll also talk about the time Roger got to meet the late, great 1950s rock DJ Alan Freed, and we'll hear the story of him almost getting pickpocketed in Jamaica by one of the biggest reggae stars at the time. He's also going to share his adventures with LSD, and let's just say Roger is a fan. So this is definitely a fun one. Let's get to part two now. You know, I grew up here in Los Angeles on the beaches. I grew up in a surf town, Palos Verdes Estates. And we were listening to all the classic rock, the Stones, Steely Dan, Grateful Dead. But just as much, we were listening to reggae. So I knew who Steel Pulse was. I knew who Marley was. I knew who, you know, Peter Tosh and, you know, his solo work and all that. I knew all about this music at a young age. But... At that point, you're a teenager, you're not looking too deeply at the lyrics of anything, or at least I wasn't. And I loved the beat and I knew I loved the song. And it wasn't until I got older that I had such a deep appreciation for his lyrics and his message, the songs he was singing. It was just a, it was a whole new way of looking at it. So it was interesting to read this book, start reading this book, and obviously it's interesting to, to talk to you about it, and how his legacy is argue, arguably almost bigger than, say, the Beatles. Oh, absolutely. It's going to be longer lasting, for sure. And on this note, though, I want to ask about Reggae Beat, your show on KCRW, because I, it's a great story, and I know that KCRW was in its infancy, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> That's an overstatement. <laughs> In 1975, I moved to L.A. Uh, I'm, I'm an actor. It's either New York or L.A., and I got to try it. So I came here. And, um, I, in 78, I met a guy named Hank Holmes, um, and he had 8,000 Jamaican records 
1978. And he got them for almost nothing. Uh, I, I tell this story in a book that Leroy Pearson and I did, the uh, Whaler's Definitive Discography. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the tale of how he did it is is too long to get into, but he, he had this massive collection. And I've been on the radio since 1961. I started at WVOX in New York. So um, I figured with my radio background and Hank's collection, we could do an incredible show because there was no reggae on the radio in L.A. at that time, 1978. And we tried every rock and roll station in town, and they just kind of laughed us out of the building. And uh, finally, we said, well, you know, KPFK, the great liberal left-wing radical bastion, that's perfect for reggae music. So we went and we did three three guest shots on three different shows. They got nice response, and there was a white woman running the station at the time. And she called Hank and me up and said, I want to talk to you. Come down to the station. And we figured, oh, my God, we're going to get on the radio finally. And we go into her office, and the first thing she says is, well, we got nice response to your shows, but... Um, we we can't in good conscience put you on the radio playing Jamaican music because you're white. So, final act, desperation, we go over to Santa Monica to this little tiny station in a junior high school classroom, about half the size of the room that I'm sitting in. And there was the office, the broadcast room, the interview chamber, and the transmitter, all in this little tiny room with 110 watts that hit the 405 and died. So they had great plans to grow, and they had a new music director named Tom Schnabel, and uh, he uh, auditioned us and said, okay, uh, you're going to be my first uh, show that I put on the air. And uh, we were on the air for about six weeks, middle of November 79, when we got a call from Island Records saying, would you mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley? Yeah. So same feeling when you had the opportunity to meet him for the first time. Exactly. Only even better, you know? So that happened. And I always tell this story. The happiest guy on the road with us was the bus driver. Because at the end of each evening, he got to sweep up all the roaches. Oh, God. <laughs> well, you got a busload of whalers. you got a hell of a lot of roaches. So when I told this story recently on one of my tours, there was an older white couple. And the wife turned to her husband and said, why did Bob Marley's bus have so many bugs? <laughs> Valid question, if you're Thank not... <laughs> Yeah. All right. Not those kind of bugs, lady. <laughs> so uh, that was the start. And then a few months later, they did the annual fundraiser, you know, the pitching for support. And they gave us an extra hour. Uh, they gave us three hours to pitch. And in those three hours, we made what the previous 10 days had made cumulatively. Wow. And wow. Ruth Hirschman, the station manager, came running down and said, from now on, you've got four hours every Sunday. And those were commercial free. And within a couple of years, it was the most popular non-commercial radio show in Los Angeles, according to the Nielsen ratings and according to the LA Weekly. 
And people told us that in the summertime, you didn't need a radio on the beach in Santa Monica to hear the reggae beat because everybody was listening. And uh, so we tried a, an experiment. I think it was in 82. We sent somebody up on the cliff above the Santa Monica Pier, and uh, we alerted people that at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we were going to ask everybody listening to the beat to stand up. So I did that. And the guy came running back to the station and he said, everybody on the beach stood up and waved. <laughs> if that's not a testament to, I mean. Tank had this incredible collection. All the artists wanted to come on our show because we really knew the history of the music. Of or at least Hank did. And I was learning. And I got really angry early on with Hank because privately he told the most incredible stories, really funny, great sense of humor. And he got on the air and all he wanted to do was, I'm here to give thanks and praises to the almighty God, Haile Selassie, without any apology. And he would just play a half hour of music and not tell you anything about the artists or about the history of ska or all the things he was doing privately. And it drove me nuts because it forced me into that position of having to reveal you know what i was learning about it and, and to do the interviews to to find out more of the the living history that was being presented to us and then we had an, uh, a syndicated show um i got hired as the national promotions director of island records in 1982 by chris blackwell for uh, reggae and african music that was king sunny a day and Marley's Confrontation and Black Uhuru and a lot of a lot of really good music, Aini Kamozi, Sly and Robbie. And uh, Chris asked me to start a syndicated radio show called The Island Hour. And he withdrew his support after 13 shows, and we'd already got on 30 stations. And uh, so we decided, Hank and I, that we would continue it as Reggae Beat International and it ultimately ended up in 130 stations all over the world. Wow. Uh, an hour a week. And we take the best of the local bits, the, the interviews and stuff, and mix it with new, new music, too. I don't want to hear it. No more fussing and fighting, baby. Hold me tight. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's think about tomorrow, girl. Our future's bright. What was the sentiment? I mean, you were building this this reggae community in L.A., but I mean, I guess the reggae community overall, um, what was the sentiment when Bob Marley passed in 81? Well, that was fascinating because uh, I don't know if you've ever run across Tequila Mockingbird. She's a, a punk promoter. Yes, I've heard you know, of her. And, and her boyfriend at, at the time, Richard Skidmore, had uh, uh, planned a ska concert in MacArthur Park on um, May 16th, Saturday, May 16th. And Bob died on Monday, May 11th. Mm. So we turned that into a memorial in LA for Bob Marley and thousands of people showed up. And the following year, we decided to do it again in MacArthur Park and we had 4,000 people. And that eventually uh, matured into a, a couple of years at the uh, 
Westwood uh, Federal Building, mm-hmm. the Santa Monica Civic. We went won at Jackie Robinson Stadium. And then by the late 80s, we had moved it to Long Beach. And so every year in February, we had Bob Marley Day. And um, I would bring my unreleased videos and do a little theater presentation during the course of the days there and MC a lot of the shows. And so that that lasted a long, long time. The last one of the last shows we had was headlined by Modest Yahoo, the yes, the Orthodox Jewish. Rusk. I remember him. <laughs> but he drew twenty five thousand people. Yeah, that's great. I remember Bob Marley Fest growing up. That was, you know, the cool thing to go to when we were in high school. We could get a ride from parents, you know, if we were lucky yeah. <laughs> over to Bob Marley Fest and be able to celebrate his music and all of that. But like I said, I was too young to fully appreciate it. And speaking of young, Bob Marley was 36 years old when he died. And I look at everything he he was able to accomplish in those mere 36 years. It I feel like it puts me to shame. Well, he knew he was going to die at 36, and that's why he did so much. He, he never slept more than two or three hours a night, according to his mother. And he told two young friends of his when he visited his mother in that Woodstock summer of 69. He went to Delaware. Was he at he, Woodstock? He wasn't at Woodstock, though. No, but jewelry he made was sold at Woodstock. He had a friend named Ibis Pitts who had an African arts and crafts store, and he used to go over there and make hippie jewelry out of stones and turquoise and stuff. And they made a whole bunch of stuff, and Ibis took it to Woodstock and sold it there. There could be so many people walking around if they have mementos of Woodstock that was made by Bob Marley. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been great if they knew it at the time? Well, I interrupted you, so continue on with this. Well, he, he was talking to them one day, and they said, oh, Bob, you know, you're going to be a big star. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to have a wonderful life, and uh, you're going to be famous. And Bob said, no. He says, when I'm when I'm 36, I'm going to die. And they went and told his mother that day. So I have interviews with both of them in the book, and also his mother, who was on my TV show, um, uh, confirming that they came to him that to her that day and said, Bob just told us he's going to die at 36. So there's three witnesses there. Uh, the epigram of my book at the beginning, as you know, is there are no facts in Jamaica, only versions. Only versions. So three <laughs> confirming versions of that fact, and I'm willing to accept that as fact. What a horrible thing to hear as his mother. Oh, my God, yeah. But, I mean, to have that fire inside of you to really think, you've got a very limited time on this earth to make an impact. That's it. Nothing else was important. Things meant nothing to him. He didn't even have a bed until about 18 months before he died when some of the women in his life bought him a bed. And he, you know, he sings about lying on the ground with the rock stone for his pillow. That was literally true. That's what he loved to do. If you asked him, even at the end of his life, what he was, he would say, I'm a farmer. That's what he was raised to do from the time he was a little kid. We will not see his like again. No. We won't. I mean, that's a testament to how special he was, but also, you know, just things changing within the industry, too. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Yeah. Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's get back to the interview. I would love to know some of your stories from the 1950s, getting to meet Alan Freed. I mean, what a character, what a a tragic character, but you know, some of the stories you have from that time. Well, I was born in 1942. So I was ideally situated for the birth of rock and roll. You sure were. When I was 11 years of age in 1953, uh, the AM radio dial was was the place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the clear channel stations they had no other station on their broadcast frequency, and they would come into New York from Boston, from Chicago, from uh, Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Alan Freed was still on the radio in Cleveland in 1953. And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was built in Cleveland because that's where Freed in 1952 threw the first rock and roll dance. And uh, it became a riot because they sold about four times as many tickets as there was room for the people. 
So it, rock and roll began with a riot in Cleveland. He had a show on Saturday nights that was syndicated to a few stations around the East Coast. One of them was a black station. I think it was in Patterson, New Jersey, a suburb of New York City. And I could pick that up on Saturday nights from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. And his his sponsors were things like a, a garage in uh, in Western Cleveland that would do brake jobs for a dollar nineteen, and uh, his his main sponsor was a, a beer, a local beer in Cleveland called Aaron Brew, and I'll never forget the raps for it. Um, he had he was in front of the microphone, and he obviously had a bottle of beer in his hand. And he would go, all you have to do is pop the cap, pour it in the glass, take a sip. Man, that beer is really here. Aaron Brew 102, when you're thirsty. And he did this commercial every 15 minutes. Oh my gosh! No what you bottle of beer. So by the second or third hour, it was let's play some really good. Really <laughs> <laughs> so I fell in love with Alan Freed, and then in August of 1954, he was brought to New York to WINS. Yes, prime time, seven to ten. And um, my buddies and I, in the summer of '58, I would have been sixteen. Uh, we used to hang out on Tuesdays in New York City, and we would hang out around studios and collect autographs. And we met Freed several times, met Betty White, Steve Lawrence, and uh, Gary Moore, and uh, uh, oh, a whole, whole bunch of early TV stars you probably wouldn't remember anymore. Henry Morgan, Bill Cullen, um, uh, Mike Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um and and Alan Freed, I have a, a card with all of those signatures on it. So one day I I, I met Freed over at WINS. We'd hang around there about six forty-five just before his show started, and we figured we'd meet him coming in. And he signed autographs, and I told him I wanted to be Alan Freed when I grew up, mm-hmm. and he laughed. And then the show right before mine on KCRW, right before the reggae beat, was Sunday Sings Jazz with uh, Tim Hauser from the Manhattan Transfer, who also knew Freed well and growing up in New York when I did. And one day on the turnaround, uh, he said, now stay tuned for the Alan Freed of reggae, Roger Steffens. And then when little Richard came to KCRW and I interviewed him, which was on the, uh, the American Masters Two weeks ago, did you see the Little Richard show? It's oh, oh I, I know it's on there. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't see it. It's got Tom Schnabel and me interviewing Little Richard. Ah, and that that was the day Richard looked at me and said, "Alan Freed Roger." <gasps> man, I didn't come down for a week. I had tears in my eyes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, my hero. You know, my my greatest influence. And Freed wouldn't play. Peggy Lee singing Fever. He'd play Little Willie John, who was currently in prison in Seattle or Washington State. Um, and and he, he would play Crazy Little Mama by the El Dorados, not by Pat Boone. Mm. Uh, you know, it was it was authentic stuff. And the majors hated it because these people were selling so many more records than the Georgia Gibbs and Patty Pages were. 
Yeah. So they drove him off the air. Uh, you know, free. Everybody took payola then. It was standard practice, but they made a, um, a real plea to get freed off the air. And, and he died a broken man at 42. Broke my heart when he died. Those stories. I mean, and now you see in retrospect how they basically formed the trajectory of your 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 life, your your path, you know? My favorite song was Earth Angel. <laughs> and in the still of the night, and the platters sang beautiful, beautiful harmonies and the paragons and the gestures. And oh man, that was what a wonderful time for music that was. I used to go uh, home from New York to Jersey. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, lived there till I was nine. And in 1951, we moved across the bridge to Jersey. So I uh, I moved to Jersey and uh, sometimes would have to commute through Penn Station. And there were arches underneath the, the station. And inevitably, there would be two or three doo-wop groups harmonizing with the echoes under the arches. And I'd miss my train more than once just yes. to stand there and listen to these guys. 50s was, was the reign of doo-wop, of great harmonies and um payola scandal killed all of that and then the folk music came in for three or four years and uh, then dylan came in and changed everything and then the the beatles and the british wave and so by the time 73 came around and uh, the major labels had bought up all the independents and deracinated the music and all this disco crap started coming out <laughs> I was hungry, like a lot of aging hippies, for something that would combine the great harmonies of 50s music with the intelligence and uh, political awareness and radicalism of the 60s best music. Sure. And then I heard Bob Marley, and it was all there. Are there any moments that truly stand out to you that we did not discuss? Another concert you'll never forget, an encounter that you'll never forget. One of those, one of those moments, like you said, you know, being high above in Vietnam and hearing mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix. Well, when we first went to Jamaica, I had saved four hundred dollars up in 1976 to buy all these records I'd been reading about in the British press all these great reggae artists that I couldn't find music by in the States. And we arrived the week that the prime minister, the socialist Michael Manley, declared a national state of emergency and mobilized the army and put tanks on all the crossroads on the island and wow. kids with M-16s on the, on the street corners. And everybody said, for God's sake, don't go to Kingston. Be worth your life to go there. And I said, well, that's where all the records are. I got to go to Kingston. So against everybody's better judgment, we went down and the streets were just deserted. Sure. And Bob Marley had a little tiny record shack about the size of two telephone booths. 
if anybody out there remembers a telephone booth. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we got we took a minibus from the north coast early in the day, and we got dropped off at noon in Kingston in front of Bob Marley's shack in this back kind of alley. And we weren't, they, they, they had no Bob Marley records for sale in Tough Gong. No Peter Tosh records. And I go outside and I look at the sign and it says Tough Gong and Intel Diplo and all the different labels they had and go back inside. And all of a sudden I look down and there's a hand in my pants pocket. And it's not mine. And I grabbed this guy so hard, I must have stopped his blood circulation because he had to let go. And I had the $400 cash in that pocket. Jeez. And he had to let go of it. And he had, it was about 103 degrees. And he had a three-piece black suit on. And, and the pants legs were about that high off the ground, the hem of them. And he opens his jacket and he pulls out a forty-five record <laughs> and i know i'm waiting i'm like okay <laughs> no, I thought you froze for a second. <laughs> clarify a record <laughs> and, he, and, he, and, he, and he says buy my record and i said that's you on this record he says yeah and it's called jaja it's a hymn to the almighty god and the pickpocket wants me to buy it so i got off for a buck and a quarter instead of $400. And it was it turned out to be one of the biggest reggae stars at the time. No. Wouldn't be smart for me to tell you. Oh no. Really? Okay, you can't you can't say. Yeah. And so that was my intro to <laughs> Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> and uh, within a half hour, a young fellow who had befriended us and realized that we were fish out of water um took us to jimmy cliff's house and we met him and joe higgs and we had seen both of them the year before at the roxy in 75 in la and uh, uh, ernest wranglin the pioneering guitar genius was there i think jenna smith was there jimmy was working it was rehearsing for his upcoming international tour and they heard i was a vietnam veteran and they wanted to hear all about that and so we 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 hit it off really well, and I think we spent about two and a half three hours there with with him. Uh, it was a little frightening though, because when we uh, left uh, the the record stores on parade on the big central square, um, this young fellow Debrusier who had befriended us hails a cab at random, and we get in, and he says, uh, "Take us to Jimmy's house." And I look at Mary, and I think they're going to pull into an alley and kill us. Take us to Jimmy's house, and we go about ten minutes away, and we pull up in front of Jimmy Cliff's house, <laughs> and meet all these superstars that I'd been reading about. And uh, so we had the hell in heaven. Within I was just going to say, and you're still coming off the pickpocket. I mean, what a day! And you know, I everything I write is from the point of view of a fan who got lucky. I'm not a musical expert. I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. I've been a fan all my life. And I try to write from the position of a reggae fan who suddenly was mixing with all the superstars and allowed to hang out with them informally and, and just 
be with them and see what their lives are like and try to capture that in the things that I, I write about them. Um, I'm not an expert. There's a lot of real good experts in reggae. Uh, yeah, but you were there. But I, I was there, yeah. There's a difference between being an expert and actually having firsthand experience, you know, and, and knowing these people. Yeah. And then as the, as the archives got bigger, they wanted to come here. Sure. That's when we started the TV show. And uh, Chili Charles, a, a drummer and, and a filmmaker from Trinidad, uh, asked me to be the host of L.A. Reggae. And we uh, we filmed almost everybody who came to town. He'd come down to the station when some of the big stars came through. And one day the whalers were between flights from New Zealand to Jamaica and they had a 10 hour layover and they came over to see the archives. And I called Chili and he came over with his camera and we filmed uh, an interview with the, uh, the band shortly after uh, or shortly before uh, Carly Barrett was murdered. It was his last interview. That was in 87. So you know, I've, I've I've had a lot of fun and and I've felt very very grateful that people were willing to to spend that kind of time with me and I want to share it with as many people. My whole life has been about finding something that really turns me on and and sharing it with as many people as I can. Yeah. You know? Hey, there's this guy Bob Marley. You won't believe the stuff he's doing, man. Wait till you see him. Wait till you hear him. You know, listen to this. Listen to that. Well, everything you're putting out there is infectious. <laughs> I already had a base understanding and love of Bob Marley, but I can say that it was really re, you know, refueled, refortified in reading your books and reading articles about your books and you know, even listening to you um on various podcasts and whatnot. I mean, I had to I had to go back and start playing it again. Do you have a favorite song, Amanda, by Bob? You know, one love was always. Yeah. And that was the anthem of the millennium for the BBC. They did a round the world 24 hour coverage. And as each time zone entered the 21st century, they cut to those different countries and every one of them put together a group of people singing one love as the song that everybody on earth would know. Yeah. That makes me emotional. Isn't that something? That's yeah. beautiful. We didn't even get into acid. And I'm the guy who turned Paul Simon on to Lady Smith Black Mambazo for Graceland. How did that even happen? I, I started a, a show called Morning Goes Makosa with Tom Schnabel in 81. And a year later, Paul McCartney, Paul, McCartney, Paul Simon left um, Columbia Records and went to Warner Brothers. And he told them he wanted to make an African-influenced album. What should he listen to? So uh, Lenny Warrenker, who ran Warner's at the time, called me and said, um, will you send Paul some of your favorite current African music? And I did. And Ladysmith was among them. And Paul called me. And we talked for an hour and a half. We're the same age. We both grew up adoring Alan Freed in New York. We figured out we were at the same shows uh, that 
we do the programs for. And for a while, we we were good friends. And uh, I sent him these records. And a couple of years after that, he went to South Africa, found Ladysmith, and put them up on Graceland. So I, I'm very proud of that. What a story! You Those should. Guys be. had been together for thirty years, and they never made enough money to have a house. Any of them, and with the royalties from Graceland, all twelve members of Ladysmith Black Mombazo bought homes for their families, and began to tour the world. Wow! Yeah, and then there's acid. And then there's acid, which I didn't even get into. I mean, <laughs> we gloss right over it. Um, <laughs> But were you an advocate of Oh, LSD? God, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Are you still? <laughs> sure. Hell yes. What is this micro-dosing nonsense? <laughs> if you're going to do it, do it. No, I, mean, I, I mean, you were you were at the summer of love. I, I, I would imagine it would be a very tough place to be if you weren't an advocate of LSD. Yeah. Well, I, I got turned on. Um, so I, I, I'm an apprentice actor at the Milwaukee Repertory Theater in 65 and 66. <laughs> and I'm reading poetry in coffee houses, the avant-garde coffee house. And I meet a guy named Bob Watt. Now, Bob Watt looks like a debauched page boy in a depraved Renaissance castle. <laughs> he's chunky he's got he's about 40 about 40 years old at this time and he's got red mutton chop sideburns and long red wild hair and he's an exterminator he runs a company called Ritapest. end your bugdom now and he's got pink bunny fur all over his truck and he exterminates cockroaches by telling them to leave. And they go. And he writes deliberately bad poetry so that you can compare yours to his and feel much better about your own stuff. And he becomes a very good friend. And he finds a place for me to rent a room with two guys who are importing sacks of sandoz acid directly from switzerland this is when it's still legal and it looks like a bag five pound bag of powdered sugar and these two guys are sitting in their apartment filling gel caps of it by hand there was no scientific rigor going on here and i can only imagine how powerful this stuff was and they were awake one time for an entire week and just giggling the whole time night and day what? Filling these tabs. And so I'd never smoked a joint in my life. I was a good Catholic boy. I was a Goldwater conservative. I'm not going to touch drugs. Uh, I think they're having too much fun. So I tried it one night with Bob Watt. And we were up all night riding around Milwaukee. I remember going to an all-night deli and putting my fingernail through an orange skin. And this barrage of arrows of orange went up my <laughs> head and blew out my ears. And then for sunrise, we went down to Lake Michigan. And Bob and I stood there seeing the lake filled with Vietnamese peasants planting rice in the middle of Lake Michigan. We both saw it. And a year later, I was in Vietnam watching the Mekong 
river peasants planting rice in the Delta. So you were so, having premonitions? Uh, premonitions for sure. I mean, it was almost two years before I smoked in Park Lane. I mean, if you've had an H-bomb, what do you need a firecracker for? Now, have you ever heard of Sister Corita, the artist from the 60s? She was a nun at the Immaculate Heart School, the radical nuns up there. No. She she did, you'd, you'd recognize her art. It was uh, graphic art. Uh, war is not good for children and other living beings. Yeah, and, and uh, very beautiful pastels. You'd recognize her art instantly. And um, she was... <laughs> She was going to be the banquet speaker in Milwaukee at a convention, the National Conference of Catholic Art Educators, all these brothers and nuns and priests who taught art in Catholic schools. So um, this, this nun who had brought me to her school several times to read poetry in downtown Milwaukee, mainly black students, calls me up one day in the summer of 66, and she says, do you do banquets? And I said, oh, sister, I am so good at banquets. I kill at banquets. I'd never done a banquet in my life. <laughs> so she said, well, two nights from now is the banquet for this Catholic Art Educators National Convention, and I just lost my speaker. Sister Corita can't come. Would you do it? Oh, I'd be glad to do it. So during the talk, I read some of Bob Watts' deliberately bad poetry. So after the banquet is over, I'm out in the lobby and a nun and a priest and three brothers came up and started to talk to me. And one of them goes, have you uh, ever uh, done uh, LSD? And I said, yeah. Do you know where we could get some? <laughs> and I'm looking at these religious people with the collars and the nun nunny outfit and i go well you know i happen to live with a couple of dealers and they said well we'd love to try it so i took them back to the hippie pad and they all dropped the brother the priest the three brothers and the nun and one of the brothers was a little tiny guy about five feet tall named brother lawrence he taught in cleveland and He's lying on the couch in the middle of his trip, and he's going, oh, oh, oh. And I go, brother, what, what are you seeing? And he says, oh, rolling bubbles of air. Oh, and in each one of them is the Madonna. So, cut, cut, cut to to uh, four years later. I'm back from Vietnam, and I look up each of these people. Every one of them has left the order, and become a civilian. No, and three of them have left the church entirely. So my job was done. I was going to say it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> all my fault. I, as a recovering Catholic, that's one of the things I'm happiest for. <laughs> okay, you should be proud. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I did a series which probably got me thrown off KCRW called Acid in the 90s. And um, I had uh, Paul Krasner, who founded The Realist on there, and I had Oscar Janiger and a couple of people who dropped acid with him and Lord Buckley. You know who Lord Buckley is? Lord Who's Buckley. Yeah, Lord Buckley was a, a stand-up comic who died in 1960, but he was unlike anybody else. Zappa re-released his records in the 60s. Um, he, he had a combination of a British accent with black jazz musicians and he translated everything into the vernacular of the hip wow oh so friends romans and countrymen was hipsters flipsters and finger poppin daddies knock me your lobes and jesus was the naz naz hip the kitty with the bent wing right it's straight yeah i mean you know he do the bible he do shakespeare uh, he he was priceless, and and uh, Janiger and these two other guys dropped acid with with Lord Buckley, and Lord Buckley went into an eighteen hour monologue, oh. and it was history. It was finance. It was jazz. It was everything on earth that you could think of talking about, and he had these people in stitches. So that that the Albert Hoffman show was the final episode of a five show series on acid in the nineties. And we got a lot of angry people because we were talking about the good things that acid does to you. But I think that's, I got fired shortly after. I'm sure you don't regret a thing though. Not if not a second. I mean, look, I'm just now we're talking in the LA times. How if you microdose, you try this and go there. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? I'm glad I lived long enough to see that. I'm sorry Peter Tosh wasn't alive to see legalization. And, yeah. What a life. What <laughs> a life. Um, but I would love to see your your archive, too. Yeah, let's do that. Mid-July mid, uh, could work. And I've got your number. I'll get in touch and uh, come by and meet my wife, my uh, we we just celebrated our 48th wedding anniversary. We met on an acid trip in a pygmy forest in Mendocino <laughs> under a total eclipse of the moon, <laughs> as one does. And uh, we've been together since that day, 48 years ago. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> That's not a testament to LSD. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we've never come down. Roger, thank you for making the time. Uh, my pleasure. Keep up your good work. Thank you. One love. All right. Thank you, Roger Steffens, for sitting down with my rock moment and for having enough interesting stories to make this a two-part interview. I have got to go see those reggae archives of his, and I promise to take pictures. 
Now, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, I suggest you do. There are a lot of great rock stories there. Thank you all for listening and feel free to reach out to me directly with any questions, feedback, or suggestions on my new website at www.myrockmoment.com. It's also in the show notes. That's all for now, and we will see you at the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.